Now look, I'm, I'm quite serious about that. If you're in two minds as to whether or not to go to that uh, week away, you want to go, if, it, if it's half as good as last year, it was just breathtaking. And um, if money's a problem, come and see me. Right? I work for the Anglican Church. I'm paid so much money, I hardly know what to do with it. And, and some of you I know are really quite broke. And part of being Christians is we help each other. That my abundance helps your lack. So if you need money, if money's the reason you're not going to come, um, I want you to come and ask me. A few people from UTS had a similar weekend a while ago and we helped a few people there. That's a genuine offer. Don't not come because of money. It's the least of our concerns. Uh, do come and ask me for it. Okay? I'll be here next week and just come and say, Ian, I could do it 50 bucks. And if what you want is a money-back guarantee, if you've got the money but you think it might, I'm happy to give you one of those. So if you go, you pay your whatever it is, you go away for the week and think, that was a waste of time, I'll give you your money back. Right? Because it, it won't be. You'll enjoy it. Whether or not you're super Christian or whether or not you're not even a Christian, I think you'll find it a very enjoyable and stimulating time, unlike any other week of the year. Habit of I shut up talking about that. I wasn't asked to give that ad. But I do think it would be a shame if you missed it, if you can come. Uh, let's pray that God would help us hear what he's got to say to us. <coughs> uh, Father, we thank you that all the world belongs to you, uh, that you have made this place and this city. We thank you for having given us brains to think with, and we pray now that you would help us to think and to understand what Jesus is saying to us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Um, one of the things I enjoy about uh, coming, walking through the university is I normally meet a few blokes who went to the school that I uh, served at for nine years, and I met some yesterday who in my mind are in the category of the party animals, the guys who um, just seem to live for the weekend, live for the getting as drunk as possible and as stoned as possible and having a really good time. Right? That's in the standard sort of Australian sort of way. And it reminded me, they reminded me of this beer ad from some years ago, which uh, you probably would have been too young to notice, but it, it had all these people dancing, all ordinary looking Australians, extraordinarily handsome and beautiful and healthy. And the, the line behind the beer ad was, Australians love a party and they don't need a reason at all. And I watched the ad for a while, a few times on the telly, and I thought, no, the truth is, it is true that Australians love a party, but I think a truer... Uh, point would be not that they don't need a reason, but they don't have a reason, which is why we have to get drunk, you see? Because there's nothing, there are not many events that simply make us feel fantastic to be alive, where we are just excited to be around each other, so we get drunk. So I think a truer thing would be Australians love a party, and there's nothing wrong with that, and we don't have a reason, which is why we've begun to do this nonsense in our community, if you stop and think about it, we've begun to celebrate things like... Halloween. You know, that's, a, that's an American thing, and, and an awful lot of Americans don't celebrate it because they don't like where it comes from. But for Australia to start celebrating Halloween, to have to sort of buy lollies now to buy off the local kids when they knock on your door so they don't look like a killjoy, and all sort of stuff, it's, it's just, I mean, it's, an, it's a US thing. It comes from part of their history. I'm waiting for us to start celebrating Bolivian Independence Day, <laughs> and Yugoslavian National Day. I mean, I'm happy for the Bolivian. It's, it just, you just think, we don't have all that much that makes us feel really good, although we should have in our country, so we, we need all this other stuff, these chemicals to make us party. 
There's a fellow who for many years organised huge parties, I don't know if he's still in business, called Jack, Jack Vidgen of the Recreational Arts Team, and he made this comment about celebrations and parties. He said, I see the large dance parties organised as part of our yearning to celebrate, a yearning that is normally unmet, except at pop concerts, football or cricket. But these can become ugly scenes. Australia needs a larger type of celebration. And I want to say I agree with that entirely. I think one of the sad things for Australia is there's not much in our hearts that makes us sing and celebrate and just believe that life is just wonderful, where you can enjoy yourself without needing to take the chemicals. And one of the things that you notice when you begin to read the Gospels of Jesus, how often he talks about banquets, parties, celebrations, and how often he's at them. In fact, I think it's true that in the Gospels, there's more often references to Jesus being at someone's place enjoying a meal or at a banquet than there are references to him being in the temple or the synagogue. In fact, there's at least 32 references to Jesus being at meals where he's been invited to someone's house for dinner or at a banquet. And it's in that context that we find him in Luke 14. I've got um, bits and pieces of the whole chapter typed down on the left-hand side of the outline. Verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And this whole uh, section is, is this dialogue that happened at dinner. What often happened with Jesus, if you had him back for dinner, was he would often say things that, that were kind of bad form. And halfway through this dinner, he looks around and he says to the people, you know, when you have a banquet, don't... Don't just invite your friends, your rich friends, who just invite you back. So you get caught in this lovely wheel of, of invitation back. He said, invite the blind and the lame and the crippled, those who never get to go to a banquet, invite them. And then God will bless you. You're showing the sort of concern he has. And there's this kind of awkward silence because clearly the people who are there are not amongst that group. It's a bit like, I think, like if you know someone, you're sort of eating... You know, the fourth course of a meal or your second or third piece of um, black forest cake and someone begins to quote you the statistics of how many children will die today because of starvation. And you go... I mean, it's a bit hard to know where to go from there. Um, so someone just drops in this nice little statement to try and get everything back on an even keel. Verse 15. One of those at the table with him heard this. He said to Jesus, How blessed is the man who will eat at the feast at the kingdom of God. And that was a standard uh, pious platitude that people would say in Jesus' day. That they were longing for the day God's kingdom would come, that instead of the world being run by the kingdom of Greece and the kingdom of the Romans and the kingdom of the Assyrians, it would be run by the kingdom of God. And it would be a time of justice and blessing and peace. And there was this longing for God to bring in his kingdom. And there was this search around for the king who would bring the kingdom in, who was the Messiah, Christ. And the early Christians obviously came to the belief that Jesus was the man. Now, so he makes this sort of platitude, hoping to get everything back on a nice happy keel, to which Jesus' answer is supposed to be, Amen, brother. But he doesn't. He picks up this idea of the feast, because the feast, you see, is the most common picture Jesus uses of heaven. You probably know that. The, the, the picture of uh, clouds, which I think would be a hoot for a day or two, in fact, even longer, I think to be able to sit on a cloud and swoop from one cloud to the other uh, would, be, would be great. Um, but it might get a little tedious after 10,000, a billion years you know, in eternity. You know, I don't know, because it doesn't, never looks like there's much going on in the clouds when you see the comics of it. But that is not the picture of heaven that Jesus uses ever. The picture he uses is of a banquet, of a party, of a wedding celebration, which in that culture would go off for a week, 
of eating, celebrating, dancing, singing, sleeping, eating, drinking, dancing, celebrating. And it would go on. For, they really, when they stopped to celebrate, the people of Jesus' culture really did it. They took time out to do it. And Jesus pictures this feast, this banquet, as the picture of heaven. So he tells this story about this banquet. This guy says, it would be great to be at the feast. Jesus says, well, let me tell you about the feast. There's something strange about it. Verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So you've got these three characters, three things step up in verse 16. There's a man who has a mega banquet. That's what the Greek is literally, a mega banquet. And there's people who've been invited to it. And they're the three main things that are going on in the story of Jesus. I take it the man probably stands for God. The mega banquet stands for being involved in God's kingdom, both now and eternally. And the, inv the invitees are firstly the Jews Jesus was talking to and secondly all of us. As we'll see, the invitation gets wider and wider as the story goes on. So there is this great banquet that, that is being thrown by God, this mega banquet, this kingdom of God, this relationship you get caught up with God now, which is, well certainly in my experience, wonderfully better than I'd ever imagined in the now, but after death, it really takes off. I mean, that is where it is going to be breathtakingly good. And I guess many of you are getting mature enough to realise now that in the end, you are a long time dead. So what happens after death is not some unimportant thing. It is ultimately, there can be nothing more important because we live for a split second and then we're kicking off into eternity. And the kingdom of God begins now. I entered the kingdom of God in 1974. I didn't think of it like that. I just thought I'd become a Christian. But in the way Jesus, I entered the kingdom. I acknowledged the king to be my king. He forgave me and I began to live life as a servant and a member and a child of the kingdom. And it's good. It's tough. But it's wonderful. But the second stage will, of course, take off when we see him face to face. And he, uh, he invites all these people. And the invitations in Jesus' day went in two stages too. What would happen would be this. I decide to hold a banquet. So I'm holding a banquet actually on June the 16th for my mother. It's her 80th birthday. And we're having it at our place. And uh, so we're, we're organising. I've got to send out the invitations. But... I'll send out the invitations and say it starts at 1 o'clock. Don't get there flipping early. I'm going to be at church. I won't have had a chance to defrost the fish fingers and, the, and the, whatever else I'm going to provide. Um, don't crash the party. It won't be worth crashing. But on the, you send out the invitations, you see. And in those days, you didn't have fridges and electric stoves. So you would say the party will be on June the 16th in the afternoon. And then what would happen would be you'd kind of get ready and you'd say, okay, I'm coming. I would then work out what to cater on how many people were coming. So if only a few came, it would be a goat. If more came, it might be a bull. If, you, know, you worked out the, what you had on the menu by who came. So the people respond a vous, and he then works out the menu. And then you sit around at home, dressed in your party gear with your wife or your husband or whoever is going with you. And the servants would come round to your door and say, come for all is now ready. That was the standard thing that happened. So in the story that Jesus says, the guy gets everything ready. He sends his servants for the second stage and says, come, everything is now ready. Standard stuff. And, the, and everyone would move from their homes to the great house where the great banquet was going to be. And the good times are going to begin. And this is the great message that goes actually throughout the, throughout the Bible. God is saying to humankind, come. Don't run away, which is what humans do naturally, but come back. Come to me. And also he says that he will provide that which people need. Let me read you from Isaiah 55. 
which is just a standard sort of passage. And listen to what God is saying to human beings. He says, Come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of foods. Way back in the Old Testament, God is saying, don't spend your time and your energy and your life on what doesn't satisfy. But come, I will give you wine and the richest food. It's a picture of this great banquet. And then you run in the Gospels, Jesus is always saying things like, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And about five or six verses from the very end of the whole of the Bible, there's this lovely final invitation, come, all who are thirsty, come to the river and drink. Come and eat from the fruit of the tree of life. God is forever saying, come, come to me. And here these servants go out and say, come, the great banquet, the great kingdom is ready. And then the story goes wrong. Most of Jesus' parables, you're just cruising along with the story and they're all going, yeah, 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 well, this is good. And then suddenly there's a nasty twist in them. And it, or, or not necessarily nasty, but a shocking twist. And here's where the twist comes in verse 18. We've had the invitation, now we're at the insults. <clears throat> verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another one said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Now, I've headlined that as an insult. And there is no doubt that those excuses are a personal insult. And in the culture of Jesus' day, they're self-evidently stupid. Because we don't tend to buy fields or buy yokes of oxen, it mightn't make quite so much sense to us. But the guy who says, you know, this real estate expert, it's almost as if he thinks he's bought the block of land over the phone. I've just bought a field. I thought I'd go and see it. <laughs> in those days, if you, bought a, if you bought a block of land from someone, a field, you studied it often for years to see if it was a fruitful field. You couldn't do a soil analysis as, as we could now and check out the, you know, the, all those sort of ratios of the chemicals. You watched the flipping thing to see when it rained. Did it rain on that field? Uh, did the water rush off or did it go in? This idea of this guy going, oh, I've just bought it, I've got to go and see it. Right? It's, it's nonsense. It is an excuse, not a reason. And we all know the difference between excuses and reasons. I've never been a lecturer at a university, but certainly when I had the great privilege of serving at a school, you get used to getting excuses rather than reasons. In fact, I had one bloke, and I commended him for it, actually tried the old, the dog ate my homework. And I commended him for boldness, right? for having a go. Another bloke, another bloke, I've got the guys who hadn't done their homework to stand up. Um, and I said, I want to know the reason why you haven't done it. I said, no, I want to try something. Just tell me the truth, okay? Don't give me an excuse and a lie. I'm going to ask you a question. Just, just give me the truth. Why haven't you done your homework would be the question. And I want the truth. And the bloke said to me, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> so because I couldn't handle it, he didn't give it to me. That was also a commendable response, I thought. But, but you know that it's been an excuse and a reason... The reason you haven't done something or the reason you aren't going to someone's house or someone's party is not always the same thing. The excuse is the, the, the lie that you package in order to make the person not feel too bad. 
right, so that you don't get in too much trouble or you get some extension. And this is a, this is a foolish thing, this guy who says, I can't come, I've got to go and check out the land. Same with this guy who, who's got to go and check out his yoke of oxen. Because we know even in the Middle East today where people still use oxen, they still do, where they have two, two um, bullocks together and they put this uh, wooden thing over their shoulders and they farm with them. You test drive the bullocks because you've got to make sure the bullocks actually work together as a team. So there's actually a test driving paddock beside many of the markets in, the, in that sort of Middle Eastern parts of Asia. So you can, it's this idea if he's bought five of these things and he's got to go and test drive them, it's a nonsense. He wouldn't have bought them without test driving them. Like someone buying five tractors for their farm, you know, just oh that looks nice, or well, that one, that one, that one, that one, right? Without well, it's ridiculous. They are excuses. And this last twit, this passionate newlywed, I just got married, so I can't. Why can't it? What is his wife so ugly? He won't bring her. I mean, what, what is the problem? Or is perhaps he so badly behaved she won't come with him? I don't know. It, it's got to be. I mean, that's ridiculous in that culture. Of course, you could bring your wife. And he didn't get married by accident, and he didn't say yes to the invitation by accident. He knew these things were coming. It's ridiculous. They are excuses. And they are a personal insult. Because what they're saying to the man is, nah, I just couldn't be bothered coming. I hear your invitation. I heard it before. I expressed an interest. But when push comes to shove, I'm not coming. I'm not moving. I'm not changing. I'm sitting at home watching the Bronze Age television, or whatever they had. He's <laughs> too busy. But I want to say to you, there are an interesting three things Jesus has chosen. One is, the, one is the concern for possessions and assets. The other is his profession, his working life. That's his excuse. He's got to get the stuff to keep his farm going. And the other is his obsession with his personal relationships. And they seem to me to be three of the sorts of preoccupations people can have. There are many others that may keep them from taking seriously the invitation God has given them. Their professional life. Their career. You know, it might be a, it might not be an obvious career, it might be, um, you know, they might be a professional swimmer and just got too much time, too little time between practicing swimming and organising their jewellery collection to, um, to take seriously. I'm not suggesting anyone in particular, of course. Okay. But uh, people have busyness, busy, 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 but too busy to think about God. Too busy with all this little stuff, too busy with my work, too busy with my friendships to make time for God. Uh, so what we're doing is we're so obsessed with some of the stuff that God has placed in his good world good stuff because every bit of stuff in the world is good stuff we can just misuse it there's nothing evil in itself all this good stuff and we make that so central that we have no time to take on board this extraordinary invitation from God to come into his kingdom to become one of his people to begin to take part in that which satisfies at the deepest possible levels of being human that is, of course, what the Bible describes as the most horrendous sin of all, which is idolatry. Idolatry is when you take something of God's creation and you put it in a place where only God should be. That is the sin that again and again the prophets of the Old Testament hammer Israel for. That's why Israel, in the end, was torn limb from limb because of hundreds of years of idolatry. Where you take something that God has made and say, I will make this the most important thing in my life. You can be really silly and make yourself the idol, but it may be some other legitimate activity, a God-given opportunity, that in the end becomes nothing other than an evil idol. And you say to God, gee, you know, I really would like to... I'm interested in this Jesus stuff, I just don't have time. I've got all these idols I've got to look to, much more important than you. Um, 
when I wasn't a Christian, I had my excuse, and I think I'd said the excuse so often that I believed it. Which I think that's what you can do with a lie, can't you? You tell a lie often, in the end you believe it. My excuse was, here, intellectual. It's just not true. I mean, I'm a modern man. I'm a modern, scientific, rational man. I can't believe in resurrections. Get out of it. Fairy tale stuff. Right? The real reason was, in the end, that I had another god. The god of fun. And I saw God might, the real God, might interrupt my worship and might destroy it. I don't think I was all that conscious of that. I think our capacity to lie to ourselves is extraordinary. The Bible says that, that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know them? And often we don't really understand what's pushing us. We have excuses that we offer up to others and to God as to why we're not interested in pursuing this king and his kingdom. But here, the preoccupation with other things. And it's an insult. Nothing other than insult. If I don't go to my sister's wedding, I remember when she got married, it was in the botanical gardens, it was a beautiful day, and it would have been much more fun, frankly, to take the kids to the beach than to the wedding. If, if my wife and I and our two kids we had then hadn't turned up to the wedding, there's no point in me ringing up Linda later on saying, listen, don't take it so personal, it was a lovely day. And we just wanted to go to the beach, we hadn't been to the beach for ages. <laughs> it's, just, it's just stupid, but don't take it so personally. Of course it's personal! She had invited me to a big event. I'd said we'd be there. And then we say, you know how important your wedding is? It ain't spit. We've got to go to the beach. And in fact, wars have been fought in modern times. Wars have been fought in the Middle East over this exact sort of event where there was a big banquet thrown, invitation had gone out, people had said yes, and then at the last minute they didn't come. And it was taken in that culture as a deliberate snub. It's a way of saying, you know what I think of you? Very little. So the invitations go to this great banquet from God. And people are saying, well, you know, it's interesting. Maybe when I get older and life's not much fun anymore. Well, you know, maybe when this important term paper I've got to do is finished. I mean, big deal. None of them are wrong in themselves. But if they get to the point where we say, I can't take time out. I can't listen to God because I've got these idols to pay attention to. That in the end, I can guarantee you from what the Bible says, God will take that personally. And of course he should because it is personal. We're saying he's not all that important to us. So, well, as we see in the story, the guy does take it personally because the servants go back. Verse 21, the servant, Jesus says, the servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. So here the story changes. See, these guys who kind of would have expected to be invited show their disgraceful bad priorities and bad manners by saying no thanks so then the invitation goes to a whole lot of people who would never ever have expected to be invited to the banquet the blind, the lame, the crippled people who because of the Christian influence of our culture we treat completely differently to the ancient world we treat them with dignity and respect and we see that our abilities and blessings and wealth is actually to be used for their good, in the same way as we would like to be treated if we'd been born blind or lame or crippled or whatever else. But in those days, if you were like that, you almost certainly lived on the street begging. You never, ever got within miles of a banquet. And because of the way you'd been brought up, you never expected to be brought up. You didn't feel bitter. That was just the way it was. And what the master here, the person who stands for God at this point, says, go and get the unlikely, the unworthy, 
the undeserving, bring them in. Let them enjoy the banquet with me. Let's enjoy it together. Whoever, whatever they've done, whatever they've become, bring them in. Verse 22, Sir, the servant said, What you have ordered has been done and there is still room. Then the master told his servants, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. So what he says is, firstly, it's the people in the town. There's still plenty of room and plenty of food. So he says, go out not just from the town, but out to the streets and head out to the country. Find anyone lying around on the side of the road. Invite them in for the biggest, most magnificent banquet in the best possible company. Live music, cold wine, lovely food. Let's enjoy the banquet. And then there's this final statement. It's a fairly heavy statement. Jesus said, I tell you, not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. That's a pretty heavy conclusion. So the guys who were originally invited, to whom the invitations went out to first, who were the ones you'd expect to be there, none of them were going to be there. In the end, if you, if you snub God like that, if you say to God, not interested, um, there will come a time, according to Jesus' teaching, where you will beg to be let in. The most common picture of hell that Jesus uses is of people having seen the banquet having seen the fullness of God's glory and brilliance in paradise and they have the door shut in their face and they bang on the door and they say Jesus let us in and he says no I never knew you depart it's a scary thing but it's, it's Jesus saying there is a moment of extraordinary opportunity that none of us deserve but if we snub God and snub God and snub God and treat him like trash there comes a time, Jesus said, when the door is shut and you may well beg and cry and scream but where the day of mercy is over. But at the moment, we're at the day of mercy where God is saying, come, anyone, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, come. God wants you to come and experience life in his kingdom, life in all its fullness, Jesus says. Now, point five is a word that I'd, I'd never said till yesterday. I'm sure that you all know what the word means. It is, I'm going to have a second go at saying it, ineluctable. I'm sure you'll know what it means, particularly the engineers, they'll know what it means. Right? Because they, they not only build safe bridges, but they read. And this, this word means something that cannot be escaped from. And I spent a bit of time reading the dictionary, finding where this started with in, because all the other words started with in. And I thought that would look kind of neater. Um, ineluctable means something you can't escape from. And what you can't escape from is the crisis that Jesus puts us in. And he does put us in a crisis. Because once you receive the invitation from anyone, you are in a position where you must decide. Right? So when we send the invitations to my mother's 80th birthday party, People will be in a, what for most of them I think will be a happy crisis. They will have to decide. They'll either have to say yes or no. Right? And if some of her children say no, they're going to have to answer to me. It's going to be ugly. Right? It's a, what Jesus said, here is a crisis. God has come up to people and said, leave your little life and enter this broad, big life. A life shaped by eternity, a life of significance, a life of substance, a life where you're not just falling from one party to the next, from one holiday to the next, from one relationship to the next, but find that which is truly satisfying and true. 
and we are in a position where we have to decide. Many of you I know here have already decided. You've heard the invitation, you've said, yes, I'm in. Some may still be in a position saying, maybe. Uh, some of you may actually be here who actually know that in your own heart you've said, no, there's no king in my life but me. Uh, I'm God in my part of the universe. Um, if you're saying maybe, can I suggest to you that you, uh, you, and you might like to do this, help your friends with this way if they're saying maybe, write out the two or three things that you need answers to. Clarify the issue. What are the things about Christianity that make it impossible for you to respond as yet? And maybe even set yourself a date. I'm going to work this issue out by the end of the financial year. Or you know, by, the, by the beginning of second semester. Because I think the way that we actually damage ourselves is just by living in a haze. We've got various excuses we use. Um, yeah, I'm going to get round to it one day. You're not. Uh, the number of people who say that in the end drifting off into a very dark eternity is enormous. What God wants us to do is to be responsible, thoughtful adults, not vague, incoherent drug addicts who just live in this haze. You know, one day I'll think about it. I'm going to work it out. Because in the end, until you say yes, your maybe is still functionally a no, isn't it? Until you say, yep, I'm getting up, I'm going. I'm going to say yes to the king, I'm going to get involved with the king and his kingdom. Your maybe is still a no, just a form of no. It's a polite no, and it could be an honest no. But I think you need to tie it down. But we are caught by Jesus in a crisis, in an ineluctable in situation, right? inescapable moment of choice. Well, let's finish on the last point, being involved. That's a word I know and can say quite easily. <coughs> There's some minor characters in this story who I want to suggest to you may, uh, may involve us. And they are the servants. There's an interesting suggestion. Parables are funny things in a sense because sometimes all the various parts of the parable are quite, you know, they're not worth running parallels to. They're just one big point. Sometimes they are like they're allegories where each point represents something else. Sometimes they're a blend. The main point of this parable is clear and it is this. God loves to invite people into his family, into his kingdom. And people have to make a response. They're the two great points, aren't they? And the sad thing is that people often make an ugly response to God and to the kingdom. So this guy says, oh, how happy, ooh, how happy for those who are going to eat in the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, well, the funny thing is, there's a lot of people who could be going there, but they're not going to be there because they're preoccupied in idolatry with all their stuff. But the other interesting characters are the servants. Some have suggested that the three times the servants go out, the first lot, who happen even before the story starts, are the Old Testament prophets who say to the Old Testament people of God, there's this kingdom coming, you want to be there? And they were saying, yeah, we want to be there. And then the, the servant who goes out and says, says, come, all is ready, that may actually be Jesus himself, who comes and says, come, everything's ready. And it may well be that the last lot of servants that go out are the Christian people, who in the end go out to the town and to the ends of the earth with the message, the banquet's ready. Either way, there are these people who take out the message from the man who's thrown the banquet. And I think we can see that God is a banquet-throwing God. He is the great party person. This is what he does. He throws this magnificent feast and invites people to come and join it. And we are involved as Christian people in, I take it, taking the message out. Having said yes ourselves, God then says, I want you to get caught up in the process. Let me just show you this thing. I think it's, hope it's helpful. Now... In some of Jesus' parables, 
and stories. There are these two commands. The one we've just seen today is one of these ones where the command is come. In a number of Jesus' parables, he pictures the last day. You see this in Matthew 7 and Matthew 25, where what Jesus says to people is depart. I touched on that before. And I want to suggest to you, everyone here and everyone at the university, everyone that you know, will in the end obey one of those two commands from Jesus. If you choose not to obey the first command slash invitation to come, you most certainly will obey the command depart. Matthew 25, depart from me into the everlasting fires. That's what, there, there are two commands from Jesus. One is uh, you know, too good to be true and the other one is almost too horrible to think about. But human beings will obey one or the other. And once you've obeyed the one to come, you get caught up in this business with God. All oh, this high-tech blackboards, green boards, whatever they are. The last statement of Jesus in the Gospels is go. You know, go. Get out to the highways and the byways like the story. Tell people about this great offer. And we go as Christians with the message to come. Right. Now, I don't think the Bible is suggesting that you should be standing up you know, on the desks of every tutorial you're at. Um, preaching. I don't think that's how you do it. You can if you want. <laughs> but at some level or another, those people who've been brought into the kingdom will have the great privilege of being part of bringing people to come into God's kingdom. It's an honour. It's not anything you should feel whipped towards. It's just an honour that God says, let's work together on this. Uh, it's funny being an Anglican minister. Um, it's funny, ha-ha, and it's funny, unusual. But every now and then I tried to find other ways to describe my vocation because it just brought conversations with strangers to a very peculiar end, normally. So for a while I tried this one. People would say, what sort of work are you in? I'd say, I work in my dad's company. I work in my dad. <laughs> so what's your dad do? And I'd sometimes say, oh, he, he saves people from hell. <laughs> Or he's involved in saving the world, something like that. And that, was, that led to some interesting conversations. <laughs> but, but there is a sense in which when God adopts you into his family, he then does say, you know, we're, kind of, we're running the green grocery shop on the corner and mum, dad and all the kids are all going to be involved. And God is saying, at some level or other, we have this wonderful privilege to work with him in prayer. And that's one of the reasons why Christians happen to give their money to various things, because they various instrumentalities that send the message out to various parts of the world. I'm not asking for your money, so don't get nervous. <laughs> and what you've got here at the university is a number of magnificent opportunities to, to take part in that. I know when I invite my friends, sometimes I'm at a church and there's, a, there's an event on, they say, bring your friends, and I think, well, if I'm the minister and asking others, it would be strangely hypocritical if I didn't invite my friends. And I know at times I'm nervous. Um, and I ring them up, uh, and sometimes, frankly, I'm hoping they're going to be out because I'm nervous. And this is, uh, but I'm, I'm surprised often how if I can just find a little friendly angle, uh, like free sausages, or um, <laughs> I'll often say to them, if, it's got, if, if, the, if the meeting's got a slight twist to it, I'll say, you know, this would be a lunch unlike any other lunchtime you've had. Why not, or why don't you try this once? And I'm surprised how often my friends have said yes. Um, so you want to try being involved in this invitation work that God has. But uh, the main thing is to realise this is what God is like. He loves to invite. He loves to throw banquets. And uh, we don't want people who make excuses. We want people who say, yep, I'm in. Right? And enjoy it. And rejoice in his kindness. Let's pray. Now, Jesus, thank you for these strange stories you tell and for the way that they so often have a strange twist in them. 
Uh, Lord, we are strange people who have offered this enormous love and your good plans and your good loving friendship for our lives and yet at times we make silly excuses. Uh, thank you that so many of us here have heard your invitation and have um, been able to respond with a yes. We pray that you would uh, use us, Lord Jesus, to bring others uh, into situations where they can hear about your goodness and your kindness. Uh, but above all, Lord Jesus, thank you for doing all that you did so that this banquet can be enjoyed by us. We pray this in your name. Amen.